Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash DVG. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck Healthcare KGAA Darmstadt, Germany. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on non-small cell lung cancer. This activity comprises seven streaming episodes featuring Dr. Paul Pack and Professor Keith Kerr. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Dr. Paul Pack from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Welcome to this activity entitled Practical Guidance for Identifying and Managing Patients with Advanced Medicine 14 Skipping Non-Small Cell Lung Cancers. In the next episodes, my colleague, Professor Keith Kerr, and I will explore the options and issues for testing and management of Medexon 14 skipping non-small cell lung cancers. During this first presentation, I'll provide a framework to guide the diagnosis and management of patients with Medexon 14 skipping non-small cell lung cancers, along with an overview of the history behind this and what some of the unmet needs in this population of patients are. We've known about MET as a proto-oncogy now for decades, with some of the first data emerging in the early 1990s. But for our purposes, the most relevant data comes from the very early 2000s uh, out of Ravi Salgia's lab, who identified a handful of non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer cell lines that harbored these MET-exon-14 skipping mutations. These data would have to wait almost 10 years before they were sort of rediscovered in routine sequencing analyses performed by our group, for example, Memorial, as well as larger cooperative groups like TCGA, where we found these alterations in about 3 to 4% of patient samples. Our group was one of the first to report a case series of MED inhibitors like crizotinib, uh, which were effective in this patient population. And that brings us up to about 2015, where a number of different phase two studies kickstarted including geometry, which tested the TKI-catmatinib, as well as the vision study, which tested the TKI-tapotinib. Uh, these studies uh, accrued fairly rapidly and received their first FDA approvals actually in early 2020 with FDA approving catmatinib, uh, and then shortly thereafter in early 2021 with the FDA approving tapotinib. And then that brings us up to EMA approving tapotinib earlier this year. Uh, Medexon 14 skipping itself is an unusual kind of oncogenic event. It is not something that affects the coding region uh, for the receptor. Rather, these are these alterations that happen in the flanking intronic sequences that triggers an alternative spice event that deletes exon 14, causes an in-frame fusion of exon 13 and 15. And the reason why that's important is because exon 14 encodes for a simple binding site that targets MET for degradation. This leads to stabilization of the receptor, increased signaling dependence, um, and oncogene addiction in a way that we can target with MET inhibitors. Medexon 14 skipping mutations happen in about 3 to 4% of all non-small cell lung cancer patients. Most of these are adenocarcinomas, just by dint of the fact that adenocarcinomas are the most common histology in non-small cell lung cancers. But it's important to note that these alterations can be found um, in other histologies, such as squamous cell lung cancer and sarcomatoid carcinomas. And so you'll see as one of these themes, it's quite important that we do routine testing on all non-small cell lung cancer histologies. There are some clinical characteristics that we've come to understand about Medexon 14 skipping positive non-small cell lung cancer as well. Perhaps the most important is that this seems to portend poor outcomes. And we know this um, in reference to some of the newer phase two trials of MED inhibitors, where the overall survival for patients treated with selective MED inhibitor is somewhere between 20 to 25 months. 
But on cross-study comparison with historical data, this goes down to between 8 to 15 months in patients with Minoxidil 14 skipping who are treated, for example, with just chemotherapy or immunotherapy. So quite a difference in overall survival, uh, which tells us that the prognosis, for reasons that may have to do with intrinsic biology or the age of these patients, um, is something of an issue. A lot of these patients are well into their 80s by the time they're diagnosed with this illness, which is quite a bit different from other oncogene subgroups like each of our alpazolol lung cancer patients where the median age of diagnosis is in the early 50s. It's important to note also that there's about an equal proportion of ever smokers and never smokers, which again is different from other oncogene subgroups like EGFRN ALK, positive lung cancer, where most of these patients are never smokers. And I discussed the poor prognosis of patients who are diagnosed with this illness. The other thing to mention is that retrospective studies have shown that immunotherapy may not quite work that well in this patient population. Overall response rate we've reported is about 17% with a median PFS of between two to three months. This just elevates the importance of targeted therapy options for this patient population. So in summary, Medexon 14 skipping is a mutation detected in about three to four percent of all non-small cell lung cancer patients. Median age of this population is 72. So again, a lot of these patients are well into their 80s by the time they're diagnosed and are a unique subgroup of patients with issues of comorbid conditions um, and sort of frailer substrate. We do know that Medexon 14 is now officially an actual oncogenic alteration because it has FDA-approved therapies uh, through cabatinib and tapotinib, which we'll see in a little bit. Um, in the next episode, Professor Kerr will discuss best practices when testing for Medexon 14 skipping mutations. Hello there. Um, thank you very much to Paul for the introduction. Um, as you heard, my name is uh, Keith Kerr. I am a consultant pathologist uh, here in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and also a professor of pulmonary pathology with uh, Aberdeen University Medical School. Um, in this second presentation in the series, I'm going to discuss uh, some of the guidelines uh, around testing our patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Um, what might be best practice in this particular space, and then move on to a little bit of discussion around testing for met exon 14 skipping mutations in that patient population. If we actually look at what happens on the ground in practice, of course, it's not always exactly according to the guidelines. In this bar chart, um, 30 physicians, predominantly from Europe, uh, were asked about the frequency with which they uh, looked for a number of different approved and accessible drugs and targets. And as you can see here, uh, the frequency with which some of these things, particularly the more recently approved targets, are looked for is actually disappointingly low. And we've actually seen this also in North America from um, community data showing similar um, lesser uptake than one might have hoped for. But I guess this is all to do with uh, knowledge and awareness and gradual changes in practice. When we think about MedExon 14 skipping mutations, and they're testing it. We know that now this is an established oncogenic driver in the non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer setting. And the frequency with which we might find these um, mutations is of the order of three to 4%. Um, in other words, it's on a par with what we would expect in the same test population for ALK fusion genes and also BRAF mutations. And the treatments um, that we have available MET targeted therapies do offer better outcomes for our patients who have MET exon 14 uh, skipping mutations. And the approval of oral monotherapy regimens um, 
to uh, provide this rationale for testing in non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer is, is definitely a step in the right direction for our patients. Many of the guidelines do mention then that in the advanced non-squamous, non-small cell population, um, this is a target that, that you should consider looking for, especially if you have access to the drugs. We also note that some forms of lung cancer, particularly pulmonary sarcomatoid carcinomas, do have uh, a much higher prevalence uh, in what is admittedly a rare tumour. The dialogue around the prevalence of this alteration in squamous cell carcinoma is still evolving. And although some guidelines do recommend testing squamous cell carcinomas, either in a broad sense for a broad group of uh, targets or uh, when it comes specifically to MEDX on 14 skipping mutations, we do know that they occur in squamous cell carcinoma, but probably at a very, very low level. So in the next episode, um, which I hope you'll join us for, uh, we'll be looking at some more specific testing uh, considerations for MEDXON14 skipping mutations. Hello again, welcome back uh, to this discussion uh, on MEDXON14 skipping mutations in the context of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. In this section, we're going to take a closer look at MET-exon14 mutations and uh, how to find them. So biomarker testing is broadly recommended in all patients with advanced non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer. And as we discussed in the previous episode, what we actually look for is driven by a number of different things, including which targets we have the technology to look for, but also which targets we need to find in our patients, not wishing to miss any treatment opportunity. And of course, that is largely predicated on the availability of particular drugs. In order to enhance our chances of finding everything that is possibly clinically relevant for our patients, multiplex approaches to testing multiple targets at the same time is always recommended. And the easiest way to do this is to use multiplex next generation sequencing, um, usually in the context of targeted panel testing. We now need to think about met exon 14 skipping alterations in a bit more detail because these are rather different to the other mutations that we look for in this group of patients. This is a very diverse and complex group of mutations, which sometimes occur within the exonic DNA, but sometimes also involve the intronic DNA and always occur around the splice acceptor site, either side of the MET exon 14. As a result, uh, these uh, mutations can be quite challenging to find because the technologies that we use to find, let's say, normal exonic mutations don't necessarily always work uh, if we are using DNA to identify this group of mutations. The mutation causes a, a skip of exon 14 during uh, transcription of the gene so that we end up with what is essentially an intragenomic uh, skip skipping fusion leading to exon 13 
joining to Exxon 15. This in turn, as we heard from Paul earlier, leads to uh, activation of the MET gene. As we know from fusion gene analysis, RNA testing is sometimes better than DNA testing uh, for finding such things. And we're going to uh, look at that in a little bit more detail now. So a number of avail available testing uh, methodologies uh, may be pursued, either on the basis of DNA sequencing using NGS technology or RNA sequencing. If we think about the DNA sequencing approach, we have hybrid capture-based methodologies and amplicon-based methodologies, slightly different ways of uh, purifying the areas of uh, the genome of interest in order to examine them for the presence of the mutations. Or we can use RNA-based sequencing approaches, as I've mentioned. So we really need to look at these different methodologies and what they offer in terms of detecting uh, this quite challenging group of uh, MET exon 14 mutations. Hybrid capture will find more MET exon 14 skipping mutations than uh, amplicon-based approaches, but hybrid capture methodologies do require more DNA, and this can be a significant problem for our lung cancer samples because, depending on the particular technology, we might simply not have enough material to work with. It has been shown in the literature that in comparison to some of the DNA approaches, an RNA sequencing approach to detect MEDEXON14 skipping mutations has a higher rate of pickup when compared to DNA approaches. So that's good news. The downside of using RNA-based sequencing is that sometimes it can be quite a challenge to get good enough quality uh, RNA from our uh, lung cancer samples. Although I'd have to say in my own laboratory, my experience is that we have quite a high pickup rate with, with good quality RNA um, at least. If we now think about the types of methodology that are actually identified as being used by clinicians out in the community, we see a wide range of technology currently being used for uh, non-small cell lung cancer uh, sequencing. Depending on your approach, it's very likely that if only one of these methodologies is being used in your clinic, you are not going to find as many MEDEXON14 skipping mutations as you might otherwise be able to identify. So the methodology of choice has to be fit for purpose, and it's often worth thinking about possibly using more than one method. So perhaps a combination of hybrid capture DNA and RNA sequencing uh, on an NGS approach, and then possibly also thinking about the additional use of uh, ctDNA, which we'll discuss in uh, a future episode. We also need to think about when clinicians are likely to consider uh, testing for MET-exon14 uh, skipping mutations. You can see from this survey that there's quite a wide range of uh, practice, uh, ranging in North America from 90% uh, looking for this upfront at initial diagnosis in conjunction with all the other targets that those physicians are looking for. Uh, but in other parts of the world, um, lower rates at uh, first visit to the sample, 
but also a very significant proportion of physicians looking for this uh, alteration after first-line therapy. This slide also does um, offer us some of the patient background characteristics that some physicians might use in order to nuance a decision around um, looking for exon 14 skipping mutations. But you know, the general recommendations are that we would not use clinical characteristics um, in order to seek these mutations because they would, generally speaking, be part of a package that we, we would be doing on all of our patients. So that's a, a very quick summary on how we look for these mutations. And I did mention uh, looking for them in the liquid biopsy, which is the subject of the next episode. Hello again and welcome back. During this episode of this series, I'm going to discuss the role of the liquid biopsy in the diagnosis of MedExon14 skipping mutations in uh, lung cancer. So there are a number of things that we have to think about when we are thinking about molecular testing in uh, non-small cell lung cancer. There may well be issues uh, around access to drugs and also access to testing methodology driven by particular arrangements around reimbursement in, uh, in your practice or indeed technical limitations of access to the required uh, technologies that are needed for the broad range of molecular testing. In situations where we have a lack of tissue uh, in order to test, we can sometimes turn to an alternative source of at least DNA in order to uh, look for um, mutations that may be picked up by that particular methodology. And there's no doubt that in the lung cancer space particularly, uh, a lack of tissue for testing can be an issue um, for some of our patients and in some of our centres, depending on how the initial material is handled or on how easy it is to actually access diagnostic material in individual patients. Which brings us to thinking about the so-called liquid biopsy as an alternative method of uh, obtaining DNA that is likely to have been derived from the patient's tumour. We know that we can find circulating tumour cells in the patient's blood, but the technologies that we largely utilise in this particular context uh, involve the extraction of free DNA from the patient's plasma. And there is an assumption that some of that DNA, although it's quite a small proportion, will be derived from the patient's tumour. This DNA can then be extracted from the blood and uh, examined and interrogated for the presence of the um, activating mutations that we are interested in. This approach, the liquid biopsy approach, has some advantages over the tissue biopsy, but also some disadvantages. On the advantage side, it is relatively simple to draw some blood. It's perceived, of course, as minimally invasive, but I would remind you that this is not an alternative to making the diagnosis in the patient. Uh, the diagnosis still has to be made, and for the vast majority of our patients, that should require the acquisition of a tissue biopsy. Of course, we can sample blood on a number of different occasions, and this can allow us to continuously monitor 
um, genomic alterations that we know are there. On the downside, as far as liquid biopsy is concerned, there are issues around sensitivity because uh, the proportion of uh, alleles with a mutation that are going to be in the blood is exceptionally low and we need very high sensitivity techniques to identify them and we also know that even if the patient has a mutation not all of those patients will be identified because the allelic frequency is below the threshold for detection. By going for blood you are going to find even fewer on 14 skipping mutations than you would in a tissue biopsy but of course the blood will find potentially find a mutation whereas if you don't test at all you're not going to find anything so it's better than nothing for sure and we also must bear in mind that this technology has been uh, proven in the sense that some of the clinical trials which validated the drugs that we use in Medex on 14 skipping mutations, um, some of these patients were identified using the liquid biopsy. And some ac academic centers already have experience of finding patients this way and successfully treating them. So, in summary, in terms of uh, what I have discussed with you around the uh, detection of Medex on 14 mutations, we know that this is an important part of the portfolio of testing because it helps to improve outcomes for our patients. We have options around tissue testing and also plasma-based testing when we're looking for met exon 14 skipping mutations, but we really must be aware of the strengths and the limitations of each of these particular technologies. And I would also like to just remind you that met exon 14 skipping mutations are only one of a range of different MET alterations that you might hear being discussed in the context of treating our patients. And it's really, really important that you are aware when you're thinking about treating a patient or thinking about using an anti-MET drug that, that you know precisely whether you're thinking about a MET exon 14 skipping mutation as opposed to MET gene amplification or upregulation of the protein. So we do look forward to MedExon 14 skipping mutations being incorporated into more and more recommendations for practice and for this target becoming a routine that we all uh, look for. So that's all from me. Please stay tuned for the next uh, episode where uh, Dr. Paul Pike will be looking at the treatment options for our patients who have MedExon 14 skipping mutations. Thank you very much. Hello, it's Dr. Paul Pack from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York. Now that we have a better understanding of testing strategies, let's take a closer look at why testing for Medexon 14 skipping mutations is so important, namely because we now have treatment options for these patients. We'll start with some survey results of clinicians' familiarity with clinical evidence for MED inhibitors for patients with Medexon 14 non-small cell lung cancer. The data is parsed out by region, so Europe, North America, and other regions, which are namely Asian regions, and also the composite data in all regions. I think what's encouraging about the survey results is that the majority of respondents 
do have familiarity with medixin 14 skipping and possibly also met inhibitors, generally speaking, in excess of 40, 50, 60%, either through oral presentations at conferences or through journal articles, which is great. Not surprisingly, because medixin 14 skipping alterations are not terribly common at 3 to 4%, there's a drop-off in terms of those clinicians who have actually seen a patient's molecular test report come back positive with one of these alterations. But that's still a pretty good rate uh, at about 20% for all regions. Now, there's a further drop-off, of course, in terms of those who have uh, heard about these MET-TKIs or enrolled some of these patients in trials. I think that just reflects the uncommon nature of these alterations um, and sort of waiting to find the right patient to start these agents. Uh, but of course, that's part of the purpose of this series is to provide additional familiarity with the clinical data, which I'll jump into right now. So there are a couple of trials that are worth mentioning. The first one is the VISION study, uh, which is a single-arm phase 2 trial that began in around 2016, testing tapotinib as a selective MET-TKI in patients with MET-XM14 skipping alterations. There was an update for the data at the uh, end of last year presented at World Lung. Uh, there were two cohorts that were presented, which were essentially identical, uh, cohort A and cohort C, again, focused on medics on 14 skipping. One of the things that made the vision study unique is that the entry criteria uh, allowed for detection of on 14 skipping either through tissue testing, which of course is the norm, but also importantly through liquid biopsy testing or ctDNA testing. And so we do have data on the predictive impact of ctDNA testing here. And then all patients were treated with tapotinib 500 milligrams once daily. And what you'll see is that the data is parsed out by lines of treatment. First, treatment naive, and then previously treated patients. In the treatment naive setting, or in the first line setting, the overall response rate is about 54%, whether or not by liquid biopsy or tissue biopsy testing. This falls off a bit to around 44 to 48%, though, in the previously treated cohort, again with consistency in liquid biopsy or tissue biopsy callouts. In terms of the time-dependent metrics for DOR, PFS, and overall survival, the data was presented again by lines of therapy. These Kappa-Meyer survival plots are the treatment-naive patients, and I think the most important are the middle and the far right uh, slides, where the PFS is shown to be between 8.5 to 15 months, and the OS is 15 to 29.7 months. Now, interestingly, uh, there is a drop-off in PFS in the liquid biopsy cohort, as well as in overall survival. We've done some additional work to demonstrate that it's likely that this patient population is actually sicker. The tumor volume that they have is higher. Uh, they tend to be sicker patients as well. And so it's likely that when you can detect metoxone 14 skipping in the blood, this probably carves out a poor prognosis population. We'll see why that might be relevant for crosstalk comparison a little bit when we review the geometry data. Uh, the data was also fairly consistent when it came to previously treated patients. Again, a difference in liquid biopsy and tissue biopsy patients for PFS and OS, where there was a drop-off in the liquid biopsy group for reasons that I had mentioned before. But it's reassuring to see that in the tissue biopsy cohort, PFS remains above 10 months, even in the previously treated setting. The geometry study was similar in the sense that it was also targeting patients with metaxone 14 skipping alterations, now with the selective med inhibitor uh, capmatinib, but it's important to note that there were a couple of distinctions. One is that tissue testing was the requirement for coming onto the study, so CTDA testing was not allowed. The other is that the study parsed out patients into defined lines of therapy cohorts. For example, cohort four was a previously treated cohort. Cohort 5B was an upfront uh, cohort. 
And like the vision study, the data were updated last year, in this case at ASCO, where the investigators had shown that the overall response rate in the upfront setting was about 66%, with a drop-off similar to what was seen in vision to about 44% in the previously treated population. The median PFS was around uh, 12 months in the treatment-naive cohort. Interestingly, though, in the previously treated cohort, this dropped by almost half to 5.5 months. So some differences with the time-dependent endpoints between geometry and vision that were noted here. Please join me for the next episode where we'll discuss how to individualize care of patients with non-small cell lung cancers and the exon 14 skipping alterations. Hello, and welcome back. Here, I'll provide a practical guidance for individualizing care of patients with Medexon 14 skipping non-small cell lung cancers. We're going to start off with a couple of surveys to provide some context here. The first deals with the rationale for testing for Medexon 14 mutations for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancers. Again, the data is parsed out by different regions. And what's important to note is that I think there is still some room to provide some education in terms of familiarity with the efficacy data for MED inhibitors. As we saw in the previous module, there is pretty good efficacy with MED inhibitors. Overall response rate is about 50%. Median PFS is between 10 to 12 months. And yet there's a fair number of respondents, clinicians, who aren't familiar with the OS benefit, with the PFS benefit, and importantly with the overall response rate benefit. There are even fewer responders who are familiar with things like improvements in quality of life that we see, and also rationales as to why we might want to avoid other standard care therapies like immunotherapy and chemotherapy in this population, again, in part because it's an older population. Uh, but this hopefully is uh, are items that we'll be able to discuss in the next few slides. The next survey result is quite important. It deals with barriers to testing for Medexon 14 skipping in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancers. And really the top four barriers are things that we're all familiar with as clinicians. The number one, of course, is that sometimes we just don't have enough tumor material to do all of the testing that we need to. And that is certainly one barrier that we've had historically that we still have now just because of the sheer number of different targets we have to test for. But increasingly what we're recommending is cutting through this by routine NGS testing, which of course can test for all of the different alterations that we need to identify. Reimbursement issues still persist, particularly depending on where you practice. Another limitation, of course, and I think for me, the biggest, most important, clinically important uh, limitation is the delay in getting the results, either through liquid biopsy testing or through tumor testing. That turnaround time is between two to four weeks. But when you have a patient who is particularly symptomatic and ill with their cancer, sometimes you can't wait that long. You just have to start treatment. And so testing delays remain, for me, again, one of the most important clinical barriers that hopefully further refinements and improvement in NGS technology will be able to circumvent. So in terms of recommendations for the management of a newly diagnosed patient with non-small cell lung cancer, that's really, I think for most of us, encapsulated in a recent update in the NCCN guidelines in 2020 that had incorporated Medexon 14 skipping, for example, as something that we need to routinely test for based on the approval of Kematinib and then shortly thereafter Topotinib uh, in patients with non-small cell lung cancers. Basically, there are something like eight different targets we now have to test for. And in addition, NCCN revised our recommendations to recommend routine testing pretty much of all uh, non-small cell lung cancer subtypes exactly because we have uh, seen that we can identify these alterations across all different histologies. And that includes, importantly, squamous cell lung cancers, which are sort of near dear to my heart. Now, the challenge here 
is we recommend, it's easy enough to say we recommend testing again, but what exactly does that look like? And so if we take, for example, an 80-year-old former smoker who's presenting you to a for, for the first time with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, what are we going to do? How are we going to guide this patient uh, in terms of what the right, most appropriate treatment is going to be? And that's shown in this uh, flow diagram that I've presented, where you'll see that really right after the new diagnosis, you have a bunch of testing that we have to do. And that centers again on next-gen sequencing of this, either through tumor testing or increasingly ctDNA testing or liquid biopsy testing to try to find these alterations. We can't abandon tumor completely, though, because the other part of this is we have to do routine PD-L1 immunohistochemistry testing as a discriminator for whether or not someone can receive immunotherapy or needs to receive chemotherapy in addition to immunotherapy. Now, the problem is that once you do the testing, there are quite a number of different possibilities in terms of what the readout's going to be for what we end up recommending to a patient. If you do find a driver alterations, like, like a med exon 14 skipping alteration, we do recommend, uh, generally speaking, the NCCN agrees that you provide this in the upfront setting. But if the testing is negative, then again, you have to rely on PDL1 test results. I think the bottom line that cuts through this complexity, because the complexity kind of sorts itself out once you know the results, is that you have to do testing. You can't really get further down that flow diagram until you get those test results. And so that really, for me, is the most important point of this. It doesn't really matter what your favorite alteration is, if it's EGFR, ALK, or Medexon 14 skipping. You have to test for all of it. And the only really good way to do this is through a next-gen sequencing platform. In the next episode, we'll review the adverse events associated with treatments for Medexon 14 skipping mutations. Hello, and welcome back. During this last episode, we'll review the safety profile of current MED inhibitors and we'll advise on how to prevent and manage common and serious adverse events associated with these agents. One of the very interesting things that we began to fairly quickly realize as we began to treat these patients with selective MED inhibitors is that there is a particular fingerprint for the side effect profile for these drugs. Mark, but what I would generally referred to as vascular leak as a phenomenon. The most frequent alteration or the most frequent adverse event is peripheral edema happening in excess of 50 to 60% of patients. Now, most of these are grade one or two events, but it's important to note that a greater one or two peripheral edema event in an 85, 87-year-old could be quite different from a grade one or two peripheral edema event in a 40-year-old, for example. In association with this, we see decreases in albumin, again, probably because of vascular leak, benign increases in creatinine, some upper GI side effects, which are not too common, and then some modest increases in AST and ALT as a class effect. Now, one of the very interesting things about peripheral edema in particular that we've come to understand is that the median time to onset and the time to resolution are actually quite long, much longer than other adverse events that we see with drugs. The median uh, time for peripheral edema to appear is about eight weeks or two months, which is pretty long into the course of treatment. And the median time to resolution is in excess of one year, which suggests that there is something physiologic going on that we don't quite understand. And also suggests that when edema comes on, it is one of these chronic things that we have to manage. Now, how do we end up managing chronic edema? We do this in the way that we manage lymphedema. It's important to note that this edema is not sort of like a heart failure edema. It's much more like a lymphedema uh, management uh, issue. And so we use leg elevation, compression stockings. If you have access to a lymphedema clinic, we do recommend referral to that along with physical therapy. 
Diuretics are sometimes used, but they seem to have a modest benefit in this population and do have issues with increases in creatinine as well as decreases in blood pressure also, of course, which in an elderly population uh, can be pretty disruptive. What I would say is the most important management strategy for edema that's chronic is dose reductions and temporary dose interruptions. It may feel a little awkward for a patient, a provider, to have dose interruptions for managing edema, but a lot of us who have treated patients with NXM14 skipping alterations with MED inhibitors are used to this. Interruptions of one week, two week are not uncommon. Uh, where we can reset that peripheral edema and make it better managed. And we don't seem to have any kind of diminution in efficacy when we do uh, provide these dose interruptions. There are other resources for the management of MED inhibitor treatment-related adverse events. Uh, too much to go over uh, in just this brief period of time, but this is one example that shows some of the common adverse events that we see with MED inhibitors, for example, with increased creatinine, GI disturbances, the rare interstitial lung disease, and these modest increases in the transaminases, for example. So I encourage you to take a look at some of these references. So in summary, MED inhibitors are relatively recent additions to the armamentarium for uh, patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. As I've mentioned before, testing, 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 testing. This is the key just broadly for this disease to identify patients who might benefit from therapies that target medics on 14 skipping, like kematinib and tapotinib, but also a range of other alterations, EGFR uh, mutations, alkyl arrangements, uh, for which there are very good targeted therapies. What are some of the issues that remain to be resolved? I think for me, it's adverse events uh, with med inhibitors, particularly peripheral edema. We don't understand why this happens. And like with most things in life, when you don't understand why something's happening, you can't figure out how to fix it. And so I think hopefully there's going to be increased work that's done to try to understand that biology so that we can improve the tolerability of these already fairly well-tolerated drugs. Um, and finally, there are some next steps that we're doing, of course, uh, in the research field. We're taking a look at new therapies, antibody-based therapies, antibody drug conjugates, for example, in early phase trials. So there's definitely more to come when it comes to targeting medexone 14 skipping uh, in non-small cell lung cancers. And so this was our last episode in the series on medexone 14 skipping mutations in non-small cell lung cancers. Thank you for joining us. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.